Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening tonight while I talk about my book, uh, Attack Morning Red. It's about how ordinary people prepared for nuclear war. Um, I am absolutely obsessed with nuclear war. I've been um, worrying about it since the age of three. Um, that's when I saw a terrifying film on the BBC called Threads. Uh, I wasn't supposed to be watching that, of course, at the age of three, but uh, thanks to lax parenting, I saw it and it has prompted my career and has also gifted me a lot of anxiety. So I obsess about nuclear war. Um, I think about it every day. I write about it. I podcast about it. I tweet about it. But there is one respite, and that's that I don't dream about it. I am spared that, at least. I think that's because I get all my horrors out on the page in my work. So my dreamscape is left relatively calm. So my book is about um, ordinary people and nuclear war. I'm not so concerned about the men in uniform with their bombs and their planes, the, the typically macho military stuff. My book looks at um, dinner ladies, uh, doctors, council workers, teachers, the BBC, uh, frightened children and fretful parents, the volunteers, the unpaid and the unheard. Ordinary people responding to the most extraordinary threat and I wanted to focus today on a particular group of volunteers who were known as the Royal Observer Corps. Now, yes, they wore uniform and they have a quite um, imposing title, but they were volunteers nonetheless. Ordinary men and women who gave up their evenings and weekends to practice for the end of the world. Now, the message of my book is clear, I hope. You can't adequately prepare for a nuclear war. You can't properly defend yourself against it. The only way to survive one is not to have one. But if it has happened, the strange work of the Royal Observer Corps would have given some people a chance of survival. But of course, whether or not they would have been grateful for that chance is a whole different matter. Now, the Royal Observer Corps we're, along, we're around long before the nuclear bomb. Their most famous work is probably that that they did during the Blitz. And that's when they were the guys on top of buildings with a tin hat and a pair of binoculars, uh, scanning the skies, watching for incoming German bombers. But when we entered the jet age, that method was redundant because there's no way that any man with a pair of binoculars can track a jet. So that role was redundant, but the rising nuclear threat gave them a new role. So in the Cold War, instead of standing on top of a building to look for the threat, they would go underground and monitor and measure the threat and the attack. And they would plot the destruction of Britain and they would plot and monitor where the bombs were dropping from hundreds of tiny little bunkers strewn all across the country. Now, I've been to one of these tiny bunkers. The one I visited was in the hills above um, Ayrshire, above the uh, seaside town of Largs. And it is uh, <laughs> deeply unpleasant, especially um, if, like me, you struggle with confined spaces. To enter these tiny bunkers, uh, properly known as monitoring posts, you open a steel hatch and you climb down a ladder into the earth. 
At the foot of the ladder is a dim, chilly, tiny room. And next to that is a dimmer, tinier, chillier room. And that's it. That's all you get down there. Uh, these two rooms are the cupboard and the workspace. The cupboard contains some tools and a hideous chemical toilet. And the workspace has a desk, a set of bunk beds and some instruments for measuring the end of the world. So if nuclear war had happened, three people from the local branch of the Royal Observer Corps would have been down there in that tiny bunker for at least a fortnight with no natural light, of course, no fresh air, uh, living on horrible rations, using a repulsive chemical toilet with a nuclear war roaring overhead. So what would they actually be doing down there? Well, they had three main tasks, uh, four if you include trying to withstand madness. The first was to confirm that nuclear war had started. It might seem obvious, but across Britain, um, if the siren had sounded and we had all scattered to our various basements or hiding indoors and the BBC has gone silent, we would need someone to confirm that Yes, the bombs have started falling, and here is where they are falling. And that is what the Royal Observer Corps would do. So how would they confirm that nuclear war had started? The first way they would do that is with one of their instruments down in the tiny bunker called a ground zero indicator. And that was basically like a, a barometer. And it would measure the change in air pressure which happened when a nuclear blast had rolled across the surface. So they would report that to their local headquarters, change in air pressure, they would report the strength of it, and that would allow local headquarters to say, well, bombs have dropped here, here and here, and this is the likely strength of those bombs. They also had, down in the tiny bunker, a radiation monitor, and that was, of course, connected to the world above through a long tube which travelled up through the earth. And they would use that to measure local uh, radiation me measurements and give fallout readings, again, reporting that into their local headquarters. Their third task, and this is the one which really <laughs> gives me the creeps, was to inform headquarters whether the local bomb burst had exploded in the air or on the ground. And that's an important distinction because they both have very different effects. An air burst creates more physical destruction whereas a ground burst creates more fallout. So they did this by using a very simple pinhole camera. Now that camera, of course, was placed up on the surface. And the idea was that the, the dreadful bright light of the bomb would uh, pour through the hole in the pinhole camera and scorch the photographic paper within. And the position of the scorch mark on the paper would tell you whether it was a, you know, whether it was high or low, whether it was an air burst or a ground burst. But of course, the problem with that method is that the camera was above ground. So one poor blighter from the bunker would have to get togged up, climb that ladder, open the hatch, and go outside alone into the post-nuclear world. Whilst he was up there, he would have to open the camera and extract the photographic paper. Now, of course, he couldn't hang around whilst he was up there because there was the threat of imminent fallout. 
So he was told, be as quick as you can, scoot up the ladder, grab the paper, replace it with fresh photographic paper in case we get more bomb bursts and come back down. But to be extra helpful, whilst you're up there, he was told, or he would have been told, it would be most useful if you could quickly glance around and make a visual assessment of the mushroom clouds. Because, of course, we've got statistics and we've got readings on on, uh, instruments to tell us about the nuclear bombs. But you can't beat a guy popping his head above ground to say, "Okay, one, two, three. Okay, gotcha. So please (laughs) count the mushroom clouds, make a visual assessment of where they are and how how dreadful and terrifying the, the world looks. So that poor guy always um, has my sympathy. Whoever drew the short straw would have been the one to pop his head up above ground, grab the paper and visually assess the mushroom clouds. Now, once the nuclear war was over, which could take, well, who knows? It could have been days, hours, it could have been over in minutes. No way of knowing, of course. But once it was all over, the observers would, of course, eventually leave their bunker Um, No more bombs to monitor and measure. The task would have been complete. No one could say when that point would have arrived, of course. So two things essentially would have told them it's time to leave. It's time to go back above ground. One would be the radiation levels. Once it had fallen to a safe level outside, then of course it would be safe to emerge, relatively safe. But the other thing which determined when they would emerge would be the simple fact of food and water. When the rations and the water had run out, then they have no choice. Whether they like it or not, then they will be forced back out into the open. So what happened at that point, or what would have happened, no one knows. There was no strict plan given to the observers for that dreadful point where it's time to go back above ground. I assume it would simply be every man and woman for themselves. Make your way home if it's still there. And if you're not in dread of what you might find there, you could try and team up with others who are working in local civil defence. You could try and find a local hospital, a local feeding centre, a local church, some public building where survivors are gathered. And you could perhaps put your civil defence training to use and help the survivors in some way, in theory. Now, I chose to talk about the observers, the Royal Observer Corps, because their experience of nuclear war would have been so unusual. Not that there is a a normal or usual way to experience Armageddon, but Hollywood uh, has tended to present the experience from the point of view of generals in their bunkers or families in their shelters, or of course the classic movie scene of panicked hordes uh, fleeing the city before the bomb drops. So that's the idea of nuclear war a lot of us might be familiar with, that's how it might look. When I was growing up, certainly I never imagined, or I didn't know at the time, that actually there would have been these tiny little groups of people, groups of three, who would be spending nuclear war in these tiny cramped little bunkers all across the country, measuring the nuclear war, monitoring it, reporting it, um, dwelling for two weeks in a tiny space, existing in a in a dim aquarium light, surviving on ration packs, um, wondering if their own families were dead or alive. 
So what would it have been like down there? What would it have been like down there for a fortnight with nuclear war, potentially the end of the world, the collapse of civilization, unrolling above your head, above that steel hatch? What would it have been like trapped down there? Would the bunker withstand the attack? That must have been the main question. Would it rattle and clang and quake? Would it leak? Would it flood? Would you bicker with your buddies in that tense, impossible situation? How would you pass the time when you weren't busy measuring Armageddon? So that's a question that I asked quite a few observers that I interviewed for the book. Uh, one of them told me that she planned to take her personal stereo with her and take her Iron Maiden tapes along. She also planned to take some makeup with her. Why on earth not? Putting on your best face for the end of the world. That's one way to keep up your spirits. Um, others intended to take biscuits and board games with them. And I found uh, lots of evidence of determined, perhaps even forced good humour and uh, cheer and camaraderie amongst the observers. Uh, one particular example, which always sticks in my mind, of this particular humour amongst the Royal Observer Corps relates to the um, indelicate matter of using the chemical toilet down there. It was explained that um, during long training exercises in the bunker, a tiny enclosed space, remember, they were, it was said that... <laughs> If a female observer had to go to the to the cupboard to use the chemical toilet, her male colleagues in that tiny, tiny little space would sing in order to cover up any unladylike noises from the from the chemical toilet. So that's a good example, I think, of using humour, using good spirits, using human nature to try and surpass or survive this dreadful, awful situation, whether it's the unpleasantness of a chemical toilet or the end of the world. Thank you for listening.